Good morning. It is great to see all of you, and I'm guessing your third service, so I'm way more tired than you are. But uh, yeah, we lost our hour of sleep. How are you guys doing? You doing well? I'm glad that you guys are here and looking forward to the barbecue. Uh, those of you who are parents uh, that are here today because invi- you were invited out and your kids are here, thank you for being here. We're excited to be with you, and I'm looking forward to eating and getting to know a lot of you after the service. Um, we're going to be one more thing before we move forward, though. I wanted to just allow us a chance. Um, you know, the worship team that comes up here and work, comes up here every week, they actually, the tech team as well, um, are involved in something that a lot of people don't see. Tech actually shows up here about 5.45 in the morning, and then uh, the, wor- the worship team is here about 6, and they are, they've already had a week of prep and everything else, and then they're, they're doing stuff throughout the morning, getting ready for first service, and then they do two more services, and if they're going to stay and spend any time afterwards, it's extra. But um, they spent a lot of time, they got, they lost that extra hour, literally, last night. Can we just just thank them for leading us this morning. Thank you, Tech, as well. Because we're really actually going to be talking about worship this morning. Worship's a very vital and important aspect of church service and life. And being having been a Christian since uh, my senior year of high school, been in a few interesting various forms of worship services. My original one in a youth ministry was part of um, over at Crossroads with hundreds of kids in the room, and uh, our worship leader actually, his he, he couldn't sing very well, so he just grabbed a megaphone a lot of times and yelled into the microphone, um, which really didn't help the tech ministry out much, but, and he would just rile people up, wrote songs and stuff, and they had a really fun rock and roll band, which was very different from my experience in seminary. In seminary, you would sit in a room, a very long chapel, and I had a professor who was literally as tall as this desk named Dr. Rigsby, and, and he would come out, and he would climb up on top of that little podium, and it would be right up here to his nose, and then these two arms would come out, and out of this bass, you'd hear, Almighty fortresses are God, and you're like, all these Talbot students are singing off key because it's a bunch of seminary nerds trying to sing. It's not a pretty sight, but it taught me all the hymns and everything that went on in services that I had never gotten to experience. And then there was my final experience in a Pentecostal worship service. And I'm talking Pentecostal worship service. And if you're Pentecostal, this isn't an insult. You would have said, whoa, these people are different. Because this was one of those, like, I've never seen anything like this level of, of service. It started off fine. Worship songs we knew. The beat was sort of like, <laughs> through the whole thing, including when the preacher preached. And so he's preaching, and they're doing the... <laughs> And suddenly he gets to this point, as they're like talking, he's shouting, he's doing his thing, and this guy's like, amen! This other guy's like, yeah! And they're jumping up and down, suddenly this guy, who's like about four feet away from me, he does this, he's like, yeah! And he just falls over backwards on his folding chair, frozen, just a boom! And I'm like, and he starts shaking on the ground, I'm like, I think this guy's having a seizure. Then three other people started doing it around me, and I'm going like, I have never been to a worship service like this in my life. If you thought that's what was going to happen in here, that's not. So the, the, the reality is that I'm sitting here watching this as people are falling over, shaking. I'm going like, you know, I'm like holding on to the chair at this point, just worried like, am I going to fall over? This is weird. This is... And so I've seen a lot of different worship services. And the thing is, what is it supposed to look like? How are we supposed to engage worship? What is it supposed to be? Because honestly, the way we worship reveals what we value. 
The way that you and I worship and, and worship God reveals the value of our lives and what is most valuable to us. And this morning when we address the subject of worship, we're going to be talking about the worship, not just anybody, but of the King, Jesus. And as, as people of the United States who have no king, but as the old phrase said, but King Jesus, we, we have kind of a gap because we haven't had a king at all as if, you, if you're from the United States. In fact, we, we elect our leadership and kings are radically different. They're born into that leadership position or they have that leadership position for radically different reasons than we as Americans think. And so it's an interesting situation when we start talking about worshiping our king, Jesus, and entering into a service in which we ought to worship our king, Jesus. And so I want to take us on a little journey about worship in John chapter 12 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, John chapter 12, or if you don't have one, you can open one and uh, you'll find uh, the Bibles under the seats. Uh, You'll find John 12 on page 898. You'll be right there with us to join with us in the conversation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly read through this passage and I'm going to... um, kind of go back and make some observations as we work through it. And it starts off with Jesus, um, who has just resurrected Lazarus. So we talked about mourning, and we talked about what it meant to go through death and and how God views that. And so if if you need that, you can go back to our podcast. And last week, we looked at um, how people who saw the resurrection didn't believe in it. And so we examined unbelief. And this week, now we shift to something new. We shift into worship. Jesus is kind of gone away from Jerusalem because the plot has been to have him arrested and ultimately killed. And so now the Passover is coming. Passover is this big celebration of the Exodus and Moses and everything that happened. And so you have to be in um, Jerusalem for this time if you can. And so Jesus comes into town beginning here in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. This is actually a very well-known story found also in Matthew and in the book of Mark. In these two, we know that this isn't at Lazarus' home. This is actually occurring at the home of a man named Simon the leper, which interesting, you don't go to a leper's home unless he's been cleansed. And so it's, it's very clear that Jesus has cleansed this man, done a miracle, and taken his leprosy away. And here in this home of Simon the leper with a man they've brought, he's brought back from the dead, Lazarus, a man he's cleansed, they're having celebration of Jesus. They're literally having a sense like a worship service, a barbecue, right? They're having a barbecue for Jesus. And that's exactly what we're doing today. But the reality is here is this celebration moment and where they're all gathered together. Martha's serving, and, but Mary isn't there. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are close friends of Jesus, as we saw earlier in the book. And so Mary shows up on the scene in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so may she keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. We'll stop here for a second because this is a picture of worship. 
They're at this celebration of thanks, a meal of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. And out of nowhere comes Mary. And Mary comes in with about 11 ounces of this expensive nard, this expensive ointment that is very fragrant. It's like a perfume. And it would have sold for a lot of money as Judas clearly laid out. He's like, that thing's worth 300 denarii. You should have sold and given it to the poor. So she comes in with this bottle and she unplugs it and she, she begins what I call a worship. And her worship, radical worship for Jesus. I mean, this is beyond anything that you and I could have imagined kind of worship of her king, Jesus. Because what she's doing is she's radically giving to Jesus in this worship. And we thought just worship was singing. No, giving is also a portion of worship that occurs in a church. And this radical giving is seen by the declaration of what Judas says about that oil. He says that's worth 300 denarii. And we as Americans, we go like, that's like $300? What, what big deal? That wouldn't have done anything for the poor. Actually, a denarii was something you were given at the end of your day's wage. So it was a full day's work of money. So if you just take California's base pay uh, minimum wage and you multiply it by eight, and so they worked an eight-hour day for 300 days in the year, you end up somewhere of just, just above $25,000 is how much this little bottle of nard is worth. Can you imagine that? She shows up on the scene with $25,000 in a bottle. I don't think any of us have any object that's probably worth that in our homes. And she opens it up. She walks over to Jesus. And according to Matthew, pours it on his head and then pours it all over his feet. Drop $1,000. Drop another $1,000. Drop, drop. And what is this for? What function does this produce? Jesus is being anointed as a king. Indeed, his name is the Christ. That's not his last name. It means a title as the anointed king. And this drop of perfume is dripping onto him, and then it's evaporating into the room. Ah, oh, that inhalation was worth $500. You know, that's, uh, that's what's going on here. What, what, what purpose could she have just dropped $25,000 on Jesus' feet? This is a conundrum because it shows that her worship was extravagant. Her giving was extravagant and it didn't matter because Jesus doesn't tell her it was a bad idea. Jesus doesn't agree with Judas. He just goes, no, that's good. It's for my burial. And we'll explain that later. But Jesus is sitting here saying, this is a great thing. She anoints the king with his oil. That's extravagant. I think we as, as, People of the 21st century who live in a very economic society, we think about economics all the time. Think about how much your gas costs. You think about how far that drive is. You think about how many hours you've been in the car. How much would that count if I was at work? You know, how much time does this, you know, we think about everything in in monetary scales. And so when you think about Jesus being $25,000 just dropped all over Jesus, that was more than the inheritance of an average person in the ancient world. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to drop just $25,000 out of nowhere and have it just evaporate in the haze machine over here so you can all enjoy a smell, right? I mean, who wants to do that? Volunteers, we'd love to see it. Go ahead, try it. But the reality is that's not what we do today. So is Judas right? Should he have sold this and given it to the poor? That's important. Except, whose worth are we calculating? I've given you the calculation of the value of the oil, but the value of the oil actually is diminished in light of the value of the one it anoints. See, when it comes to worship, it's not about how much something costs as much as how worthy is the one receiving worship. 
When you start aiming at the worth of God, when you start looking at the worthiness of the King Jesus, when you start looking at who he is and what he's valued at, um, $25,000 ain't that much in comparison to the value of Jesus Christ. Amen? And when you're worth, when you come in to worship God, the goal isn't to simply sit there and go, well, how much can I give towards Jesus? Because I want to value what I'm giving over him. No, it's actually the reverse. His worth is so great. Our giving oftentimes is far too little. But Mary gives it not because of the cost, but because of the value she has on Christ. And so when we start looking at this, this isn't just giving, this is worship as giving. One of the reasons we do giving in the worship service and we don't just put buckets in the back and say, just fill them up, we're good to go, is because we want it part of the worship service. We want it part of your giving as part of your heart of leaving it to God and giving it over to God. That's part of why churches put it in those places. In this case, this is a huge amount. She's just pouring out on Jesus just because he's worth it. Her heart is right. And her heart isn't sitting there going, check me out. I'm Mary and I have $25,000 and I'm pouring it on Jesus. Woohoo! No, her giving is humble. Extremely humble. I mean, look at this again. If you've got a Bible, grab a pen and underline this statement in verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made it pure and hard, anointed Jesus' feet, and then underline this, wiped his feet with her hair. Underline that. It's hugely important. Jesus goes and sits down. He's actually at a table. It's not like she crawled under the table to wipe her feet. Um, in their time period, Jesus would be sitting on his side on a divan, on a, like a little couch, with his feet pointed out away from the table, and he would eat it with his right hand. That's how they ate in that time period in the, these kind of banquets. So his feet are exposed. She pours the oil on his head, goes down to his feet, and starts pouring them on there. Now, I don't know about you, but that's disgusting. Okay, feet in the ancient world are not the nicest things in the world. If you were the servant in the house and you got the short straw for the day, your job, the worst job in the world was to wash someone's feet. Let me give you an example. Imagine with me that you have no, you, you've, you've been on a long road trip and your children have just come out of the, bath, the bathroom at a nice gas station in the middle of nowhere and their feet were bare. Okay, now you got the idea. Bathroom feet, dirty, nasty, gas. If you own a gas station, I'm not insulting your gas station. But the reality is that we all know that you go into a gas station, there's all kinds of stuff on that floor, and they come out barefoot, and they're like, hi, mommy, wash my feet. Anybody up for it? That's the reality of what's going on. When you walked around the ancient world, you picked up everybody's bathroom on your feet. And so when she comes up, she pours this expensive oil to wipe off his gas room bathroom feet. Only she doesn't use a towel. I grew up with two sisters. My mom had two sisters. My dad had a sister. My aunts had, sister, had daughters. I had girls all around me. I know one thing about women. You care about your hair. Not true? I mean, you spend all this time, you do makeup and stuff, but it's your hair. That's the thing. If the, if the hair's not right, it's got to be re-blow dried, curled. And some of the ladies are like, no, that's why I cut my hair short. You, even with short hair, spend more time on your hair than guys do with short hair. Guaranteed. Guys were like, yeah, okay, I'm good. You know, some guys, some of the other guys are different. But the reality is some of us, we, we're just in and out. Hair isn't the big deal. But for a woman, hair is everything in the ancient world. You didn't let your hair down to another person unless you knew them intimately. It would be like you guys running around right now at church in, in your, um, I don't know, your pajamas. 
I don't, my, my wife doesn't, like, doesn't go anywhere near a door or a window in her pajamas. She's like, okay, see you later, tells me when she's leaving because she's in her pajamas. You, you, you get in your pajamas when you're around your most intimate friends and family. You don't just go out walking around in your pajamas. Maybe you do. That's fine. Um, different conversation. You're like, yeah, okay. But in their world, you didn't just throw your hair down for anybody. You, it was an intimate sign that you knew them intimately. So here is this valuable hair. It's a sign of her womanhood, a sign of everything she is, and she's letting it down with intimacy before Jesus. Not only that, taking it and wiping this ointment with the, the bathroom feet and cleaning it off. What she has done in this act of worship of giving extravagantly, she has given it humbly so that she's sitting there before her king at his feet saying, there is no job you can't send me on. There's no thing that I'm not willing to do for you. She has humbled herself to the lowest point. It has nothing to do with Mary. It has everything to do with Jesus. And that's what worship's about. It's not about the person doing the worship. It's all about the one being worship. It's not about the person who gives. That's why we don't run around trumpeting it. When you give to the needy, you don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. They may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their, they've received their reward. And so you have this reality of, of her giving so humbly and so sacrificially and so intimately. See, Mary wouldn't have done this right when she met Jesus. This isn't her first time encountering Jesus. She didn't go like, oh, Jesus said love. Oh, here, here's, here's some ointment. I want to wipe. No, she had spent much time with Jesus listening to his word, time spent with him so that he knew this family intimately and closely, saw him raise, his, raise her brother from the dead, and now she's like, I'll give you anything. One of the reasons we aren't willing to give to the max like that, where we're not willing to pour out everything onto Jesus, is our intimacy with God is just not that deep yet. I know people, the further they get to know Christ and the deeper they get into that relationship, the easier it is to give to their king. And some of us, we're just at the beginning, and that's where it's at. And you're like, a preacher's talking about money again. Yeah, hold on a second, because we need to cover that. But before I do, I want to cover one more piece. Because what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't seem to reference the situation. Look again at what's going on. So Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he's about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for $25,000 and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief and had charged the money bag. He kept helping himself to it. Now, this is a perfect opportunity for Jesus then to turn and say, you know what? Don't listen to Judas He's a thief. He's just as being greedy. Just leave him alone. No, he he doesn't ignore the poor argument. Instead, he addresses it. He says, leave her alone so she can keep it because it's for the day of my burial. For the the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And suddenly there's this conversation that happens in the church. Some people read this text. They run over here and say, see, we don't have to worry about the poor anymore. They're always going to be with you. Stop trying to solve the problem. Jesus says they're always here. You're not going to beat poverty. Don't do it. On the other side, you have this group of people that run along. They go, see, Jesus says we need to help the poor all the time. It needs to be the poor, the poor, because Jesus isn't with us anymore. So he said, hey, when I'm gone, it's about the poor. That's not how you can interpret this text either way, actually. And while we get into these debates over whether we should help the poor, when we should help the poor, whether we should stop AIDS, whether we should help AIDS, whether we should stop cancer, guys, let's just be honest. Is it a good thing to help the poor? Yes or no? Yes. Thank goodness you said yes. (laughs) Is it right to fight cancer? Yes. Is it right to fight nuclear proliferation? 
Oh, now I'm going to get a mixed answer. But the reality is, Christians have a position on these things. And what we long to see and long to do is to be right, but never to put the cause above the king. See, Jesus says, it's good to help the poor. You always have the poor. In fact, he's quoting Deuteronomy, which goes on to say, they're always with you, so help them out. Because they're always with you. Literally in relationship with you. But don't, Jesus says, neglect that the king is greater than any cause. And you say, well, where is Jesus? He's not here today. If you're a Christian, you have a simple answer. You take your finger and it's like this, right? Jesus is up there. No, he's in here. What does, he call the, what does the Bible call the church? But the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. Interesting that he would use the phrase the body of Christ. That the church is supposed to be the group doing the care for the poor. The church is supposed to be the group caring for the orphans. The church is supposed to be the group that's out there dealing with the causes that hurt and destroy humanity. Parachurch ministries instead have picked up a lot of the slack because, to be quite honest, when we start talking about these things, there's some dangers associated with churches and, and talking about money. And I'll address that in one second. But the reality is that you can give two causes, and you should give two causes, but don't let the cause become greater than the king. What do I mean by that? How do you make the cause greater than the king? That you care about the cause so that you try to eliminate a cause that can't be dealt with and you ignore the people that you're caring for. Too often we want to deal with poverty, but we don't want to be with the poor. Jesus came amongst the poor, lived amongst the poor, dealt in charity, not in humanitarianism. And the goal for us may be to give to certain groups. Make sure that when you give, though, you give in the name of Christ. Because there is no giving that should be in giving us a name, but everything giving Christ the name because he's the king. And so we can give to the church because we're the church. We're the body of Christ. And we're supposed to care about these things. And you can give to others. Just give it in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said all this. And I mean it in the context of worship. But there is one thing that hinders us from this extravagant, humble, intimate giving to either Christ as church and the cause. And that is this one thing called greed. What kept Judas back? Greed. Judas sat there and said, why would we do that? We could give it to the poor. He wasn't caring about the poor. He's actually caring about his own pocketbook. He was considering, hey, I could get a little bit more out of this. And so often, so many of us, including myself, are caught in greed. When a pastor starts talking about money, we start calculating, why would I do that? You guys are a bunch of greedy people, right? I mean, let's be honest. How many places in America have churches used their authority to simply oppress people, be unfair, garner tons of money while they're flying a jet, driving in a nice car, and ensuring that they've got all the wealth they need while the church goes in pain? While the people are writhing in poverty, they're putting gold layers on their idols. And so our culture has looked at that and they said, this isn't fair. In fact, you're harming people. This is ridiculous. You're oppressing people with your power. How could you do that? And let's be honest, guys, the church has been greedy. It's been greedy. The church has turned around, wanted more and more and more and more and more and more and more, but has forgotten they were made to be the body of Christ. And as we think through that process, we need to be repentant of it because it's not right. But here's the warning. Just because the church is filled with greed doesn't give you the excuse 
to be greedy. And that's the rub. The scriptures actually tell you, rebuke your brother, but be careful not to fall into the same sin. And it's because we can actually resonate with each other on the same thing. See, the church is filled with greedy people that produces a greedy church. It's the most generous churches that produce the most generous peoples because it's filled with generous people who produce generous churches. And the reality is that this isn't about making a church great. This isn't about filling a church's coffers. This is about Jesus. The rest is a conversation of greed. The rest is about a conversation of, oh, I have more than you and you have less than me and I need to make that fair. All greed talk in various forms. But when it's worship, it's you are worthy, God. And even if I can only give $10, he makes that $10 more valuable because he is worthy. And if I can only give a short amount of time, he is worthy of that short amount of time. If I can only humble myself because it's all I have, he says, that's all you have, then I honor that. Because before the feet of a king, everyone is equal. And that's what we have, the equalizing great Jesus the king who's loved us, who is worthy of our praise, worthy of our extravagant giving, worthy of all of these things. And we as a church and we as a people need to watch our hearts for greed. It kills worship. It kills it. But it doesn't stop there because there's a lot more in this passage as we move forward to the next section. In fact, what we see is radical worship comes to radical giving, but what radical worship also is done in praising Jesus to others. Notice how this continues. Verse 9, when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Not like Jesus couldn't raise him back from the dead, but because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they've gone out and they cut down all these, these palm branches, which was a picture of royalty in the Jewish world. When the, when the Maccabeans had, had won, he, they actually cleansed the temple with palm branches. It became the picture of the dynasty that had set free Israel. And so now, when you grabbed a palm branch, it was actually printed on their coins. It was a picture of the kingly Messiah, messianic um, dynasty, this coming king. And so when they grabbed these, they're yelling, this is the king, save us now, set us free, kick Rome out, Hosanna! That's what they're yelling. Jesus' response is not to go, okay, guys, calm down. No, 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 you don't get it. I'm not a king. Not of this world. No. His response is, he found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and, he had, and had been done to him. So here's Jesus. His response is, find me a donkey. Finds a donkey, climbs on it, and starts riding down. He's probably waving at everybody, riding, hearing them yell, Hosanna. He, and he's moving down the middle. And we're like, why a donkey? You know, because you'd expect a king to march in on a horse. Well, here's the difference. A horse in the ancient world is the modern equivalent of our Hummer. A Hummer is a military vehicle that we've adopted to the roads. It was originally a military vehicle, very powerful military vehicle. And it's the transport vehicle that's really, really the best for somebody who's out in a military zone. Well, Jesus isn't in a military zone. Instead, what the donkey is, is the Mercedes Benz of the ancient world. When you climbed on a donkey, you didn't climb on something that was lowly. This is a young donkey, very strong, capable of taking you a long, long way. 
And so this is the best kind of car in their time period. If you drive a Hyundai like I do, that's called using your feet. You know, that's the average normal way of getting around. If you need to go long distances, you take a greyhound. That was called a camel. But we won't, he's not on a camel. He's on a donkey. And so he's marching in in his motorcade. He's, got, he's on his little motorcade donkey with all of his disciples surrounding him. This is pomp and circumstance. And he's marching in and people are shouting and screaming, Hosanna, this is the king of Israel. He's fulfilling scripture. They're singing Psalm 118, which is a, king, a psalm of the king. And it's just this picture of royalty that's come to town. And so Jesus comes into town, the crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness, talking about him. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. It's a beautiful picture because it's a picture of praise, unadulterated praise. And when people gather on Sunday mornings, what we have the opportunity to do is to exalt our king. And Kevin told me a story of a, of, of a Christian missionary, uh, actually, uh, who had, was being brought around by an Asian man in the South Asian Pacific area. I don't remember exactly the country he said, but um, while he was there with them, eventually this man sees this hubbub going. Everybody's rushing to the streets. And this, this little Christian guy who's been showing them the kind of the, the Buddhist temples and stuff and what they were going to do to help reach people gets up and runs to the motorcade. And he's like jumping up and down and, and it stops and the window rolls down a little ways. His hand comes out and waves like this, pulls his hand in, the window goes back up and off goes the motorcycles and the motorcade. And the guy turns around. This is a Christian guy. He says, did you see that? Our king, he waved. He waved at us. What a gracious king. Our king is amazing. And he's just going off about his king. And of course, Kevin... This American guy is sitting there going like, ah, I don't get this. Weirdest thing in the world. He's just a king. He's not a king. He's just a guy. And we don't understand that the king was this picture of loyalty and care for the people. He's the, he was the guy, the father of the land. Then our hearts don't burn in the same way as when we speak about Jesus as the king. Yet these people are exa- just exulting, excited. Here's the king. And when we come into church... It should be a place where our excitement for our king comes bubbling out of us. It should be a place where we're shouting, praise God, he's here, Jesus is here, because he's here in his presence by his spirit. We should be excited about Christ in his presence. Because you know why I know that? When we get excited about things, we value them. What we value, we get most excited about. I'll tell you how I know this, because I've been to baseball games where that little boy's got that baseball bat in his hand, and here comes that ball, and he hits that thing, and that ball goes flying up, 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 over everybody's head, lands out in the outfield or beyond, and everybody's jumping up and down, and you look over as the kid rounds the bases and hits first the home plate, and, and there's the dad, and he's going, yeah, yeah, and he's crying. And he's exalting because our children are, you know, dads, I'm not even going to let you off that easy. I've seen men cry when their little five-year-olds are up here on stage going, I'm a little teapot, short and stout. You know, that you're like, that's my boy. Yeah. Because we value our children. They're so valuable to us, aren't they? I mean, come on. Our children are valuable. We go crazy for them. When your team wins, you're painting yourself blue, red, and gold. You're like, ah! You know, people do weird things about the things they value. 
And we come into church where the king of all eternity has won you eternal life. He has given you eternity to live with no pain, no suffering, no sin given as a gift. We come into church and we're like, I'm cool like that, man. I don't move. There you go. I clapped. You, you happy, Mark? Seriously. Now, you didn't do that earlier. I love what you guys uh, worship, but there have been cases in our church where we seriously sit there and we're just like, oh, no, he told me I had to clap. I'm not clapping now. You said clap. I don't clap. That's oppression. And the reality is, Jesus is worth a radical amount of praise. See, when people come in who don't know Christ and they see us cheering our children and stoic for Jesus, who do they think we value more? Who do they think we're more excited about? And the reality is we should unleash. We should get excited about Christ. And I hear you're saying, no, you don't want me to. It's ugly. You've never heard me sing and you don't want to see me crying and raising my hands. Not pretty. God likes ugly. I'm just going to tell you right now. He loves it when we sing like crazy and it looks ugly. And the reason I know this is because I learned worship from a guy who was tone deaf. Dead serious. In a small group setting, college Bible study, somebody just busts out a guitar, guitar player, sang, sang well, sang the songs, old Maranatha stuff. Learned all my songs from these things. And next to me is my best friend, Kevin. And he is a young guy just out of college, or just out of high school, sorry, on his knees. And he is crying, and he's singing, our God is an awesome God. And I'm like going, that hurts, but that's amazing. (laughs) And his heart was just poured out before his valuable king who loved him, and he didn't care who knew it. And broke me open. I love singing because of what Kevin did. I love being in worship because I know it's about my heart to God and just exulting in my king who gave me eternal life, who saved me from sin and death. You know what else? They run around and they tell everybody about what Jesus did. You hear about what Jesus did. You hear about what Jesus did. And they gather this crowd and we're called to the same thing. Yeah, we love Christ. There's intimacy as Mary had it. We live for Christ. Yeah, we want to be out there singing and shouting. And yes, we even want to share Christ. All of this needs to go on. It's all worship. And it's not something to be afraid of, but there's one thing that'll stop it. Notice what the Pharisees were doing? (gasps) Hey, 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 we're not gaining anything. They're all leaving us. It's called self-concern. They're all about themselves. And to be quite honest, the church service is far more of a place of self-concern than it is about worship of Jesus. We come in, and some of us on this side of the camp, we're like, I'd raise my hands, but everybody be looking at me, and I don't want to do that because I don't want to give any attention to anybody else. I'd sing, but I'd really be offending people. We turn the volume up so that you can sing, even if you don't sing bad. That's why it's loud, so nobody can hear you. But the reality is that you're sitting there and and you're praising God, but really you're not going to because you're concerned with what everybody's going to think. Self-concern stops worship. And we I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm." I mean, the same problems on the other side. Don't get me wrong. I love singing out. 
And sometimes I'm over here going, Our God is an awesome God. I rule. This is awesome. I feel really good. Ooh, I'm liking this today. And I'm literally singing about how good I'm singing because I like the way it feels right now. And this God is, a, and literally, I'm sitting there going, hmm, I wonder the person from me knows how good my voice sounds. And that's a horrible thought, but that's the reality of what happens on this side of the table. Worship can vanish in an instant when you're thinking about you. Whether it's whether you're thinking about what everybody else thinks about you or whether you're thinking about what everybody else thinks about you. Oh, you're like, you're an evil person. That's why I'm the pastor. You got to put the worst guy on stage to teach you that you're all okay. But the reality is that this is the problem in worship. It is a divided heart in which it's hard to focus our minds and our lives strictly on Jesus Christ, who is the king, who is worthy. It's so easy to slip into pride, so easy to slip into self-concern, focused on me. But the reality is God wants us to be focused on him. Christ calls us to be focused on who he is, and he is worthy of that radical love. He is worthy of that radical worship. See, in the ancient world, when you had a king, you didn't select your king because he won the most votes and was a good argument. You didn't select your king because, hey, he had the best apparatus and spent the most money. No, actually, the ancient world selected the king because he was the guy who mounted his horse with his sword, rallied the troops, and charged straight at the enemy and won. Every ancient king throughout history, the first of a line, won the greatest championships, won the greatest victories for his people. And when that happened, they exalted him as king and said, you are our champion, you are our king, and the children got the blessings ever since until somebody else rose up and stopped the children and they became king. The first nation that ever stopped that pattern was named the United States of America. Prior to them, that's the pattern. And Jesus is in that pattern. He wasn't voted in. He rose up because he's the greatest conqueror that's ever existed. Every oppression, every unfairness, Every harm that has come upon humanity, he stood up and took on. He rode the donkey as a victorious king. He was anointed on his feet for his burial because the cross is his throne. And on the throne, when he sat victorious on the throne, he bared upon himself all the oppression and sin of humankind. You see, every evil that you face, every horrible thing that you've endured in this world, whether it be from governments, whether it be from family, whether it's the things you've harmed others with, all stem from sin. And Jesus has taken it on himself and he says, I have judged it and I have dealt with it. You are forgiven. On the flip side, you have Jesus who has now taken upon himself every harm and every evil and the horror of death. You're getting older. You feel the pain. You see the gray. You lost the hair. You realize that your time is near. The cancer has come. And yet Jesus has conquered these things already so that you will have eternal life. Every day you live, you step one step closer if you know Jesus Christ to eternal youth. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Christ is the greatest victor overcoming the greatest evils. So next time you get an unfair tax lien on yourself or your HOA tries to, never mind. But the reality is that you find yourself in a situation where you are being treated unjustly. Christ will judge it. He has conquered injustice. He has conquered every form of evil on the cross because he has conquered sin. And that's why he's a king worthy of everything. He's a king who has given you life and freedom and the presence of of very God himself. That is worth 
worshiping. That is worth celebrating every day. And I think especially on Sunday when he rose from the grave. And so I want to encourage you to contemplate two things this morning then. Where is it that your greed has held you back from your worship? In your giving, in your intimacy? Or where is it that your self-concern restrains you from exulting in a king who gave us everything? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to praise you. And we thank you that you have sent your son, our king, to save us. And what a great champion you are, Jesus, that you would overcome our sin, as you would overcome our oppression, as you overcame the harms we've caused and all the evil that we've done. And you have been the God who has given us these things and you've overcome death to give us life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would set your, your royal presence in our heart, your spirit to move in us, to convict us where we need to, where we have been greedy and held back from you in our worship. God, where we've been greedy and we've um, not drawn into intimacy because it was up to us, our time. Or God, where we have become so concerned with ourselves that we can't release who we are and where we're at before you. We can't let down our hair. We can't wave our palms. We can't shout. And so as you stir these things up in us during this song, would you just guide us into repentance? We ask that you aid us in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.